All right. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning or your Bible apps, I want to invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we are continuing our refocus series, wanting to refocus our hearts and our minds on the things that truly matter. You see, we don't want to be distracted by the latest controversies of the 24-hour news cycle, but we want to refocus our attention and our affections this morning on the things that truly matter, the things that matter to God. And I'm excited to do that with you folks this morning as we refocus our holiness. Um, before Amy reads our passage, 1 Corinthians 5, I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, Lord, we, Lord, we thank you that you are a God who cares about us. <laughs> You care about us. You have spoken to us in and through your word. Father, in your word, you've given us words of eternal life, Lord, words that lead to the good life. And so this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would meet us, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear your good for us in 1 Corinthians 5. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunk, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. The word of the Lord. It's a fun passage, right? <laughs> Well, if, if we haven't picked up on this already yet, if there was one church that caused Paul to pull out his hair, that made him age well before his time, it was definitely the church of God in Corinth. As we've seen, as we're going to see this morning, and as we're going to continue to see over the next few weeks, this church had no lack of problems. They lacked unity. They uh, struggled with sexual immorality here. They're taking each other to court. 
<laughs> Members are getting drunk while celebrating the Lord's Supper. There was no lack of problems in the church in Corinth. And here in chapter 5, it seems as though Paul is beside himself. He, he cannot believe that he is going to have to say the things that he's going to say in this passage. I mean, have you ever had that moment where you're uttering words and you can't believe them while they're coming out of your mouth that you are actually having to say this? I experience this with our kids all the time. It's like, I never thought I would ever have to say X, and yet here I am. That, that's, where, that's where Paul is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As we heard, as Amy read our passage, there were, there were two problems in Corinth. First, there's an unrepentant sexual immorality going on in the church as one of the church's members is sleeping with his stepmom. And secondly, and here it seems the worst problem in Paul's mind, is the church's failure to respond appropriately to this man. You have the problem of a man sleeping with his stepmom, and you have the bigger problem of the church failing to address this sin. When this passage here, Paul wants to show them how they are supposed to respond to the problems of sin in the local church. And before diving in, I think we need to see that this is a pertinent issue for us in the church today, too. I hope it's not a surprise to you to hear that sexual immorality is a problem in the church in the 21st century. And as we're going to see in more detail below, Paul is not just concerned here with sexual immorality. That happened to be the problem here in Corinth. But Paul is concerned with any and all sins that people commit habitually unrepentantly and unapologetically. In verse 11, we see him referring to greed and consumerism, referring to those who get drunk or those who are verbally abusive. And so just like the Corinthians, you and I, we need to know how we're supposed to respond to the presence of sin in the church. When we see one of our brothers or sisters in Christ living in obvious sin, how are we supposed to respond? When you see someone in the church consistently giving in to their anger and never seeing them repent of the sin, how do you respond? Perhaps you see a friend who is just spiraling in an addiction of some kind, whether it is drugs, whether it's alcohol, pornography, or any other number of things. How do you respond? Or maybe you just see some other sin present in, in one of your brothers or sisters in here and you never see it repented of. What do we do? Well, for the good of our souls and for the good of the church, God in his word here in 1 Corinthians 5 shows us how we are to respond to the presence of sin in the church. Because as we're going to see, there is a right way and there is a wrong way to do that. And so how do we respond? Well, thankfully, we're not left wondering. In this passage here, we see God's instructions as he gives us three actions to take here. He gives us three steps to take when we are faced with sin in the local church. The first action step here that we see is in verses 1 through 5, where we are called to redemptively remove the person from the church. Right off the bat here, we see how seriously God takes unrepentant sin in the local church. Just look with me at verse 4 here where Paul says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. 
faced here with this man in their church, this man who is living in unrepentant and obvious sin, how is the church to respond? What are they supposed to do? Here in verse 4, Paul tells us they are to deliver this man to Satan. Now here, this isn't literally handing him over here. Here, Paul is referring to to symbolic language, illustrating that they are to remove this man from membership in the local church. And in removing him from the local church, the place where God's spirit is present, they they are sending him out of the church into the realm or into the sphere of Satan, the one who is the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air. This call, to, this call here to remove this man from the local church is actually repeated three times. It's repeated, and we see it in verse 2, verse 7, and verse 13 here in addition to verse 4. It's, Paul is very clear how the churches respond to this man. They are to remove him from membership in the local church. Because of this man's actions here, they are to remove him from the church, signifying that they can no longer affirm his profession of faith. That this removal here that Paul is talking about is often referred to as church discipline. They are carrying out church discipline on this man. And in that, they are just saying that they, as a body of believers, can no longer affirm this person's profession of faith. I think it's important for us to see here that they're not saying he's not saved. They can't see into his heart. They don't know whether he truly is or isn't converted. But what they are saying is that based on his actions, they can no longer affirm his profession of faith. I think as we think about this man here in 1 Corinthians 5, it's important for us to see, too, that this wasn't just a one-time sin. It wasn't like this man was, was even struggling with the sin, quick to repent after falling into temptation again. That's, that's not what ha- what's happening here. This is not a picture of someone struggling and growing slowly in the Christian life. Here, this guy in 1 Corinthians 5 is in open rebellion. He is refusing to acknowledge and repent of his sin. Something that the Bible, and Paul tells us in verse 1, even the Corinthian culture knew was wrong. And in removing the man, as Paul says in verse 11, they are not even to associate or even eat with him. They are to, to make it clear in how they relate to this man that his actions are not okay. So how do they respond to the presence of sin in the church? Well, here we see first that they are to redemptively remove the man. And you might be thinking, sitting here, man, that just seems a bit extreme. You might be wondering, is it really necessary? I mean, is it really loving to kick someone out of the church because of their sin? I mean, after all, if someone is stuck in sin, don't they need the church more than ever? And I I think those are, are really, really good questions. And I just love the heart and the compassion behind them. And I think that there are a couple things that we can say in response. Well, I think first, as a church removes someone from membership, they are simply reflecting what the person has already demonstrated by their actions, that they want to be removed from the community and the care of God and his people. As we think about this man here in Corinth, if continuing along in the church community, if being under the the care of God and his people was something that was important to him, then he would turn from his sin and he would repent. But by his actions, he was showing that his sin, continuing continuing this relationship with his stepmom was far more important to him than being involved in the local church community. 
And so in removing the guy, the church was simply, was simply affirming this man's self-imposed exile. And secondly, I think more importantly, we need to remember that the church isn't simply removing this man, but they are redemptively removing this man. This isn't some religious form of cancel culture where someone says or does something wrong and they are, and they are canceled. They're canceled for, for committing some socially or politically unacceptable sin. That's not what Paul is calling for here at all. In our modern cultures, uh, cancel culture, there's no such thing as grace. There's no such thing as mercy or forgiveness. But here, the church was to discipline this man. They're to remove him for his good. This removal here in 1 Corinthians 5, it's an act of love. We see this in verse 5 where Paul says that they are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. But it doesn't end there. He keeps going. He tells us why. We see that when Paul writes, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What's the, the purpose of the removal here? It's not to shame this man. It's not to ostracize him so that, that the church can feel good about themselves. But it's so that his spirit may be saved. The, the, the purpose of this removal is redemption. Is this man's redemption, his, his salvation. The, the goal here behind the drastic measure of removing this man from the church was so that he would see, perhaps for the first time, the seriousness of his sin. And that his flesh, not his literal flesh here, but that his disordered desires would be put to death and that his spirit would be saved. This removal here from church membership is an act of love. I think a little illustration can help us here. I mean, think of the last time that you got a pretty nasty cut or scrape. I'm not talking about a, a little boo-boo that you got, but the last time you had a nice, nice little wound there. At some point, this wound needed to be cleaned, and you probably had to put some alcohol on it. And what did that feel like? It didn't feel good, did it? I don't think anyone enjoys that, right? It would have stung. It doesn't feel good to have alcohol put on an opened wound. But what does alcohol do? It cleanses, it cleanses, it disinfects the wound, and that is what church discipline is like. It's like putting alcohol on an open wound. It hurts, it's, it's painful. No one is signing up to experience church discipline, but the goal of church discipline is that the wound might be healed. It's that we might experience the healing, the redemption that God knows we need. So that's the purpose of church discipline here. It seems harsh, but God's purpose, God's goal in it is good. And while we're not exactly sure whether it was this man or not, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we do see that through the use of church discipline, by redemptively removing a member from the local church, that someone does repent. Paul calls the church to accept this man once again into the church body. And again, we're not sure if it's this man here from 1 Corinthians 5 or not. But again, we see that while redemptive removal doesn't always work to accomplish its redemptive purpose, purpose. It is a means that God uses to save those whom he loves. It's an act of love. Before moving on to the second step, I just want to let you know that we as elders are deeply committed to this practice. Well, we know it's not necessarily a fun or an encouraging thing. In faithfulness to this passage and others like it, we are committed to taking sin seriously as God does. 
and loving the members of this church by holding them accountable to habitual, unrepentant sin. And secondly here, I'm going to say more on this in the next point, but as church members, I believe that this passage here is calling us to take our own sin and the sin of others seriously as well. Sin is not to be tolerated or played with in the church. When we see a brother or a sister in our church family living in unapologetic sin, it must be addressed for their good, as we've seen, and also for the good of the church. So how are, we, how are we to respond to unrepentant sin? First, we see here that we are to redemptively remove the person from the local church. And secondly, as Paul continues, we see that we are to remember our own redemption. Look with me starting at verse 6. Verse 6, Paul writes, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Using leaven as an illustration here, Paul calls the Corinthians to remember their redemption, to remember their true identity in Christ. Now, you may know this already. I had to do some little Googling this last week on what leaven is. But leaven is, is similar to, to yeast, and it is, if, if Wikipedia is correct here, it's similar to yeast, and it's used to cause a lump of dough to, to ferment and to rise. What they would do here in the ancient Near East is that they would take, what they would do is they would take a lump of dough that's been leavened, that's been fermented, and it's, had, and it's been able to rise, and they would take a small piece of that leavened dough, and they would work it into a dough, that's, uh, into a dough of unleavened bread. And apparently, the bacteria and the cultures from that small bit of leavened bread would spread throughout that unleavened lump, making the entire thing leaven. That's what, what Paul says here. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I, I think of those of you who are familiar with sourdough starters, you know exactly what Paul's talking about here. And for Paul here, in the same way that a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough, Paul knows that a little bit of unaddressed sin can spread throughout the whole church. Um, and, but, but for Paul, this must not happen because as he says in verse 7, that the church is not to become an unleavened, or is not to become a leavened lump because as he says at the end of verse 7, or in the middle of verse 7 there, that they really are unleavened. What Paul is pointing the, the reader's attention to here is who they really are in Christ. Paul is saying that they really are pure, that they really are holy, as, as Paul said in, in the opening of the letter, that they are saints. And because of who they are in Christ, they can't allow unaddressed sin in their midst because that wouldn't be living in light of who they are as the redeemed people of God. Paul makes this clear here as he continues in verse 7, where he says that for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Just like the Israelites in Egypt were redeemed, they were saved on the night of the Passover through the death of the lamb where they would put the blood on the doorpost. For the Christians in Corinth and for you and I here in Grace Church, we have been redeemed, we have been made holy through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, the true and better Passover lamb. The one who's been sacrificed not to save us from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery to sin, Satan, and death. 
And so when we are faced with the presence of unrepentant sin in our midst, we're not to boast like the Corinthians were, but we are to remember our redemption so that we might live in light of our true identity in Christ. As Paul says in verse 8, he says, let us celebrate the festival. What a, what a great picture for living the Christian life. He says we are to celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil. That's, that is not living according to our old way of life, living in light of the flesh. But we are to celebrate, we are to live the Christian life with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth that is living in light of our redemption, walking in the Spirit. Here in these verses, we see, we see the claim of the gospel on our lives. You see, the gospel and God's grace don't give us permission to sin, but quite the opposite. The gospel gives us the power to pursue holiness. You see, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, they free us from the power of sin, and they empower us to fight against it, to live lives that are pleasing to him. That's why Paul here calls us to remember our redemption, because it's only as we remember who we are in Jesus that we'll be able to live like we're supposed to and respond to sin in appropriate ways. I think there's a, a great illustration of this in one of my favorite book series. And for those of you wondering, it is not Harry Potter this morning. But in, in Andrew Peterson's Wingfeather Saga, one of the, the main characters, a boy named Kalmar, he gets partially transformed into a fang. This is an, an evil lizard-like creature. And in the last couple books, we see Kalmar really struggle and fight to stop this transformation into a, into a fang from fully taking over who he really is. And central to Kalmar's fight against becoming this fang is his older brother, Janner, who is constantly asking him, what's his name? All throughout the latter books, you hear Janner asking Kalmar, what's your name? When he sees his brother Kalmar struggling, struggling with the fangness inside of him, he whispers to him, Kalmar, what's your name? To which Kalmar, sometimes more easily than others, is able to reply, my name is Kalmar, son of Esben, high king of Anira. And as Peter Andrew Peterson tells us, whenever he remembered his name, he felt more like himself and less like the fang. You see, just like remembering was absolutely central to Kalmar's fight, it is absolutely central to your and my fight against sin as well. For us to properly respond to unrepentant sin in the church and in our lives, for us to live holy lives in who we are, we need to remember who we are. We need to remember our redemption. I just want to take a few moments to apply this to our lives and to our church. I think as we think about this point here of remembering our redemption, I think more than anything else here, these verses are calling us to mutual care for one another. As I briefly mentioned earlier in point one, we must be a church family that takes sin seriously, and this means that we must be a church family that keeps watch on one another. This isn't in the sense that we are constantly sin hunting or idol hunting in other people's lives. That's, that's not what I'm talking about here. That's not what Paul's talking about. 
but in the sense that we are intentionally caring for those that God has placed around us in this church. I mean, just think about those in your home group or those in the Bible study that you attend. If you happen to see a pattern of sin present in their life, I think this passage as an act of love is calling us to humbly pursue that brother or sister. I think following Matthew 18, I'd encourage you to go personally and privately to that person. Just free help here. Social media, text messages, emails are probably not the best way to have that conversation. But go in person to that person and go in a posture of humility, asking them questions, not coming with accusations against them, but asking them questions about what you're seeing in their life, honestly desiring to see if what you're seeing is true or if perhaps you've been mistaken. I think here it's important for us to remember that it's not a trial and we're not a prosecuting attorney, but in love we want to care for this brother or sister. And so again here, just suppose you do see someone consistently giving into their anger. Or maybe you notice someone isolating themselves from the church body. Or maybe it could be that friend you see spiraling in addiction of some kind. In light of this passage, see that God has called you to be your brother or your sister's keeper. And in love, humbly pursue that person and care for them. And especially in light of verse 7, let's be a community that's caring for each other as we remind one another of who we are in Christ because of who Jesus, our Passover lamb, is and what he's, all, and what he's done for us. You see, friends, we all need janners in our life who will come alongside us and who will ask us, what's your name? We need each other to be there for us, especially when we're struggling with sin and when we're suffering. We need others who are going to remind us and who are going to point us to the fact that we have been redemptively redeemed by Christ, our Passover lamb. Brothers and sisters, that is the best way that we can care for one another. For whatever reason, you reach out, that person doesn't respond. If that's the case again, in light of Matthew 18, I would just encourage you in love to humbly pursue that person again and again and again, patiently, prayerfully, asking that God would use you to bring this brother or sister back. And at some point, get others involved if you need. It doesn't have to be one of us elders, but if you think that it might be helpful for us, do know that we are here and we are willing to help. So when faced with unrepentant sin in the church, what are we to do? We're to remember our redemption we're to redemptively remove the person from the church. And lastly, we see here that Paul is calling us to relate redemptively to the world. We are to relate to the world redemptively. In the final verses of this chapter here, Paul is going to use, a, Paul is going to use the situation with this man to provide some much-needed clarification to the church in Corinth about how they've misunderstood his previous directions to them. In particular here, as, as, they, as the church thinks about how they are to relate to the surrounding culture, Paul wants to highlight two realities for them. He wants to, to provide two corrections for them. The first correction that he wants to make to them as he encourages them to relate to the world redemptively is the first thing he wants them to see is that they are to be faithfully present in the world. Starting in verse 9, 
we read, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. It seemed that the, that the Corinthians, this is just ironic, who willfully allowed sexual immorality in the church had taken Paul's previous instructions to not associate with sexually immoral people to mean that they weren't to relate or hang out with the sexually immoral people of the world. So they readily accepted it inside the church while cutting themselves off from the outside world. But here, Paul couldn't be more clear that that's not what he meant. He, as he says at the end of verse 10, if that were the case, they would have to go out of the world. But that's not what Paul's calling for. He's not the calling the Corinthians, the Christians in Corinth, and he's not calling you and I here in San Diego to isolate or to separate from the world. Instead of separating, what we are to do is we are to redemptively engage the world. As Jesus taught us, we are to be salt and light in the world. Here, I think Paul just has in mind the, the example of Jesus. As we think about Jesus, as he lived in such a way that others could accuse him of eating with sinners and tax collectors, of, of eating and cultivating close relationships with those who were considered socially unacceptable sinners of the day. Paul's saying, you're not supposed to isolate, but you are supposed to be present in the world in the same way your Savior, Jesus Christ, was present in the world, engaging those around you. Now, to be clear here, I'm not saying, and Paul's not saying, that we are to become just like the world. As Christians, we are to remain distinct. But again, following Jesus' example and Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians, this doesn't mean that we are to separate from the world but it means that we are to be faithfully present in the world, showing a different way of living, one that causes those outside of the church to want to be around us in the same way they wanted to be around Jesus and to find out what is different about us. So here, in my opinion, this means that things like the, the so-called Benedict option just should not be an option for Christians wanting to faithfully imitate Jesus. Rather than removing ourselves from the world, we are to be in the world, not of it, showing the world the beauty of the gospel and how we live and interact with those around us. So that's the first thing in how we relate redemptively to the world. We are to live faithfully present lives. And secondly here, it seems that we are to relate redemptively to the world as we judge those inside the church. Starting in verse 11, Paul says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. You purge the evil person from among you. We've already talked about the purging the evil person from among you, so I can be brief here. But in these verses here, Paul wants us to see that we are not to judge those outside the church. As Paul says in verse 13, God is going to judge those outside the church. But while we're not to judge those outside the church, Paul is very clear that we are to judge those inside the church. 
We are to judge those who claim the name of brother or sister. We are to do this for the sake of the gospel and for the witness of the church. You see, when the church fails to address sin and it begins to look like the world, or in some cases, like here in Corinth, to look worse than the surrounding culture, then the church loses its witness. I mean, this is always a live temptation for the church. And so once again here, God in his kindness, he reminds us of how, he reminds us how we are to respond to anyone who claims to be a Christian, but is living a life of characterized by unrepentant and unapologetic sin. We are to purge or we are to remove the evil person from among us. I think this raises a question for us here as we consider our posture in the world and in the church, are we more concerned with judging the world and calling out all the ways that we see sin at work in the world around us? Are we more concerned with that or are we more concerned with the holiness of Grace Church? It is so easy for us to flip through cable news or whatever else it is and just to cast judgment on the world around us, to say, oh, look at how bad the world is while overlooking sin in our own midst here. Here in 1 Corinthians 5, God is calling us to be far more concerned with the purity and the holiness of the local church of our lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters around us than we are with how the world lives. I mean, to be honest, if we have a functioning doctrine of sin, we should not be surprised by anything we see in the world around us. And Paul here is not calling us to isolate and to remove ourselves, but he's calling us to enter into the world redemptively with love, showing the love and grace of Christ. And he's calling us to judge those inside the church, again, as an act of love, but taking the claim of the gospel on our lives very seriously as we seek to live out who we truly are in Christ. Well, for those of you who are here and perhaps you might not consider yourself a Christian. Perhaps you are here because someone's dragged you here or you're just checking out this Christianity thing. First off, I just want to say thank you so much for being here this morning. And secondly, I would just say, as, as we've heard Paul have some tough words for those inside the church, um, I just want to bring your attention to the fact that God also has some tough words for those outside the church as well. As, as Paul says in verse 13, God judges those outside. The Bible here is clear that we're all sinners, and on the day that Jesus returns, we will all face his judgment. And you can either stand before him on your own and justly receive the penalty for your sin, which is death, it is separation from Jesus, or you can stand before him covered in the blood of Jesus, the Passover lamb, the one who experienced the ultimate redemptive removal on the cross, when God's wrath was carried out on his own son, not because of his sin, but because of our sin, the sin of all who trust in Christ. So this morning, if that is you, I would just want to encourage you to turn to Jesus, to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus, the Passover lamb, the one who has died so that we might experience life, that we might truly be unleavened and live as he has called us to live. So this morning, take Jesus. 
So how are we to respond to the presence of sin in the local church? This morning, I hope that you're seeing that the redeemed people of God must relate to sin and the world in redemptive ways. Well, as we close here, I want to excuse the ushers to prepare to serve the Lord's Supper. I want to invite Rick back up. And as we close, I just want to encourage all of us here to take a few moments to consider what we've heard. In the quiet of your hearts, take a a few moments to talk with the Lord. Ask the Spirit to bring to mind any ways that you might need to apply what you have heard this morning in his word. It could be a sin that you've been holding on to. Perhaps the Spirit is inviting you to remember your redemption. Maybe it's the ways that you are tempted to relate to the world as, and those sinners out there. Per, perhaps the Spirit's calling you to, to change your posture from one of fear and separation to one of love and engagement. Or maybe the Spirit's brought to mind a brother or sister that he might be wanting you to talk to about something you've seen in their life. Take a moment to, to examine your motives Consider, are you desiring to love that person? And consider how you might humbly and gently approach them. Just take a moment to consider what the Spirit might be inviting you to this morning. Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we so thank you that your word is living and active in our lives. Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would give us the faith you know we need to believe the words in in Scripture that we've heard today and give us the grace to live in the good of them, to live into whatever you are calling us to in your word. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we close, we want to close by celebrating the Lord's Supper, a a weekly practice that engages